Seltzer Kings Podcasts. Hey, are you into werewolves, mad sciences, and a little bit of witchcraft? Then stay tuned for an all-new episode of Watch Corner. We're riding this train straight into the sun. Woo! Tune in to a classic episode of Watts Corner on the Seltzer Kings Network. Available on all podcast platforms. Now, now Gavin, it's not a literal witch. It's, it's metaphor. It's, you know, wit- it's a storm, Gavin. Ass. The following podcast contains... Oh, ah! What the f*** did that for? Hey! That was- Don't swear. What are we? Werewolves, not swearwolves. Explicit language. Hello and welcome to the podcast that asks a simple question. When you decided not to even try to make for Whitefish Bay, what the hell were you thinking? I'm your host, Dave Bledsoe, and this is episode number 287, The Witch of November, where we set sail on the final voyage of a Gordon Lightfoot song. Stay tuned. The What the Hell Are You Thinking podcast is brought to you by the Columbia Transportation Division, Ogilvy Norton Company of Cleveland, Ohio who wants you to know we only paid the fucking bills on the thing. It's not like we were in charge. You want to blame someone? Let us, let us fucking drop a name in your ear. Northwestern Mutual. They own the thing. Yeah, fucking Chicago. Always blaming Cleveland on us, and we ain't got nothing to do with it. The Columbia Transportation Division, Ogilvy Norton Company of Cleveland, and denies any culpability or responsibility for the accident. We just hired the sailors. We don't have anything to do with the oar or the sailing of the ship. So stop blaming us. A freighter carrying a crew of 29 disappeared on Lake Superior during a severe storm last night, and so far, no survivors have been found. The freighter, the Edmund Fitzgerald, was transporting iron ore when it ran into high winds and 25-foot waves. Rebecca Bell has the story. In the area where the Fitzgerald went down, a sister ship joined the search, but so far all that was found was an oil slick, life jackets, and an empty lifeboat. There was no sign of the 29 men aboard. Officials say the freighter was fighting gale winds and 25-foot waves. The Fitzgerald left the Burlington Northern Docks here at Superior, Wisconsin, Sunday afternoon with a cargo of more than 26,000 tons of taconite ore pellets. She was bound for Detroit. The huge freighter was last heard from shortly after 7 o'clock last night when one of its officers radioed a nearby steamer to say the Fitzgerald was taking on water and had lost two hatch covers. Shortly after that, the freighter disappeared. Well, it's purely speculation, but uh, uh, with a following sea like that, uh, you would consider the possibility of the ship uh, broaching to and possibly capsizing or else just breaking in half uh, and uh, splitting apart. Even though the Coast Guard now considers the Fitzgerald lost, officers continue to plot the area where debris was sighted in a search for possible survivors. Officials, however, say it would be impossible to live more than four hours in the 49-degree waters of Lake Superior. Rebecca Bell, NBC News, Superior, Wisconsin. If there was one thing I wanted to be as a young and foolish teen, it was to be a heavy metal god. Oh, honey, no, 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 I got my first guitar when I was 14, and when I finally made 51, it was all just a really stupid dream. I am many, many things, but Musically Gifted is not one of them. We know that. 
None of this stopped me from believing that I might someday become a heavy metal god or at least a long-haired, hard-bodied rock and roller because like Steve Perry taught us, if you wanted to be a rock star, all you really needed to do was... He took the midnight train going anywhere. Fortunately for me, I learned pretty early on that I was never going to be David Lee Roth and if I continued on that path, I was more likely to wind up the owner of a barbecue place. Welcome to Famous Dave's, home of the best and boldest handcrafted barbecue in the world. And honestly, I wasn't that good of a cook. The only thing that saved me was my friend Miles introducing me to the kind of guitar playing that did not require one to be so much good at playing guitar, but rather just embracing a kind of mellow vibe and laid-back attitude. Masters of the craft like John Denver, James Taylor, and Harry Chapin. A bunch of fucking pussies. Fuck them. Oh, yeah? Oh, yeah? You want to step to Jim Croce and say some shit like that? And they say you don't tug on Superman's cape. You don't spit into the wind. You don't pull a mask off at old Lone Ranger. And you don't mess around with Jim. I don't do that. I mean, none of that made me a better guitar player because, well, nothing could. Practice, practice, practice. Well, yeah, maybe, but I was never going to do that. So, I just needed a kind of musician that fit my kind of guitar skills, and then I would play his songs. And that is where Gordon Lightfoot came in. Now, let me be clear. Gordon Lightfoot is and was a far better musician than I will ever be. But the songs he wrote were not complicated for the guitar player, yet were still beautiful and moving. So I devoted myself to learning Gordon's songs. I mean, not all of them, because some of them are really hard, but some of them were the easy ones. That way, I could look like I knew how to play guitar and rely on my ability to sing a bit, and hopefully girls would want to have sex with me. How did that work out? Well, a lot better after I discovered hard liquor, karaoke, and other men's wives. Still, for all that, I've retained a love for Gordon Lightfoot to this very day, and one of his songs remains lodged in my muscle memory so much that I can play it on guitar even years after I've given up actually playing. Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, uh, Gordon Lightfoot. That's right. And this week, pod friends, you're going to learn about it. Not the song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, the, the actual wreck of the ship, the Edmund Fitzgerald. In order to tell the story of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald... I still don't understand why. Because it's a fascinating moment in American history, and we may not have more of those, so shut up and listen. Where was I? So to tell the story of the SS Edmund Fitzgerald, we have to go back to a time long, long ago when America still made things. Things besides billion billionaires much, much more money. You see, the Great Lakes are the largest body of fresh water in the world and were a key to the transportation of raw materials across the northern part of the country. Lumber, coal, iron, prostitutes. Not prostitutes, Protestants. Sorry, I wasn't clear in the script. To the massive refineries and manufacturing hubs that used to employ what we then called a middle class. I know you've never heard of those because we don't have them anymore. They've been extinct for about 50 years. America was doing so well that even people of color were experiencing the largest peacetime and economy in the world history if at a significantly reduced rate because, you know, we're still America. To move this massive amount of cargo, ships, big-ass ships were needed, and they were built in numbers, making the Great Lakes one of the busiest sea lanes in the world. And all of those ships traveling across all of that water in all kinds of weather meant that many of them sank. Over 6,000 ships lie in the icy depths of the Great Lakes, but the most famous of them all is the Edmund Fitzgerald. We already figured that out. 
In the mid 1950s, the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company commissioned the construction of a brand new ore freighter from the Great Lakes Engineering Works of Rogue River, Michigan. Wait, Wait what? what? Oh yeah, life insurance companies used to own lots of things like ships and iron mines and stuff like that because they were just sitting on shitload of money because people weren't dying yet. So they might as well put it to work making them more money. Insurance companies still own lots of things that might surprise you. Prostitutes, drugs, you name it. Yeah. Northwestern Mutual invested in the iron and minerals industries in large-scale bases, including the construction of the Edmund Fitzgerald, which represented the first such investment by any American life insurance company. Valued at around $50 million in today's money, the Fitz was the first ore hauler designed from scratch to transit the newly constructed St. Lawrence Seaway, allowing access to the Atlantic from the Great Lakes. Capable of carrying 26,000 tons of ore, nearly five and a quarter million pounds, and at the time of construction, was the longest ship on the lake, which is also what the crewmen said about their penises. You just made that up. Clearly, you've never met a sailor. Quoting from her Wikipedia page, quote, By ore freighter's standards, the interior of the Edmund Fitzgerald was luxurious. Her J.L. Hudson Company design furnishings included deep pile carpeting, tiled bathroom, drapes over the portholes, leather swivel chairs in the guest lounge. There were two guest staterooms for passengers. Air conditioning extended to the crew quarters, which featured more amenities than usual. A large galley and fully stocked pantry supplied meals for two dining rooms. Edmund Fitzgerald's pilot house was outfitted with state-of-the-art nautical equipment and a beautiful map room, unquote. The Fitz was a prestige posting for her captain and much sought-after job by her crews of the Great Lakes. Quote, Edmund Fitzgerald was a record-setting workhorse, often beating her own milestones. The, the vessel's record load for a single trip was 27,402 long tons, which is 30,690 short tons, or 27,842 tons, and that happened in 1969. She set seasonal haul records six different times, and her nicknames included Fitz, Pride of the American Side, Mighty Fitz, Toledo Express, Big Fitz, and the Titanics of the Great Lakes, unquote. As a side note, the Toledo Express is now a sex act too disgusting even to be mentioned on this low-rated podcast. Named for the president of the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Company, Suck up. her launch and christening might have been a harbinger of her fate if you were of the superstitious sort. Quote, quote, when Elizabeth Fitzgerald, wife of Edmund Fitzgerald, tried to christen the ship by smashing a champagne bottle over her bow, it took her three attempts to break it. A delay of 36 minutes followed while the shipyard crew struggled to release the keel blocks. Upon sideways launch, the ship created a large wave that doused the spectators and then crashed into a pier before riding herself. One man watching the launching had a heart attack and later died. Another witness said that they swore the ship was trying to climb right out of the water, unquote. All that, of course, is nonsense. The ship's career was free of major incidents or accidents and loss of life, if you don't count, of course, the sinking and total loss of her crew that ended her life, which I I, I guess you kind of have to. But this isn't a spooky story. This is a story of hubris, bad luck, corporate malfeasance, and the big lake they call Gitchagumi. The final voyage of the Fitz started out entirely unremarkably, November 9th, 1975. Leaving Superior, Wisconsin, fully loaded with 26,000 long tons, another popular sailor euphemism for penises, she was en route to a steel mill on Zug Harbor in Detroit. The weather forecast called for a storm that night, but it was predicted to pass south of the lake, Superior, and not be a particular threat to shipping, particularly a big ship like Big Fitz. Two hours after she left, the National Weather Service updated its forecast, saying the storm would not, in fact, miss Superior, but was now a major, major storm with high winds and rough seas. I don't like the sound of that. 
By 7 p.m., the forecast called for gale warnings over the entire lake and issued a notice to seamen. The Fitz shifted her course northward toward the Canadian side to avoid the worst of the weather and seek shelter on the Ontario shore. At roughly 1 a.m. on the morning of November 10th, the Fitz was in the teeth of a full-on winter storm with 60-mile-an-hour wind gusts and 10-foot waves. By afternoon on the 10th, things... Well, this is all gone to shit. With sustained 60-mile-an-hour winds, thick snow, and high seas, the Fitz had been sailing with the SS Arthur M. Anderson, but had left her behind, though they maintained radio contact. At about 3.30 p.m., the Fitz radioed the Anderson, saying that she was taking on water, lost two vent covers, and was developing a list. Now, I don't know what all that means, but none of it sounds good. The Fitz said her bilge pumps were keeping up with the water she was taking on board, but they weren't in great shape. And by 4.10, the captain radioed the Anderson again, saying that she'd lost her radar mast, was now effectively blind in bad weather, and would be slowing to let the Anderson catch up and provide radar coverage for her. By 4.30 p.m., the Anderson was close enough to see the Fitz and began guiding her towards the shelter of Whitefish Bay, but there was a problem. When the Fitz radioed the Coast Guard asking about the Whitefish Bay Lighthouse, they were informed that the light and radio beacon were inactive. They really should have hired someone from the Suffolk Lighthouse Academy to run that thing. Sponsor shout-out! Captain Cedric Woodruff of the Avafors said that between 5 and 5.30 p.m., the Whitefish Whitehouse was on, but the radio beacon was still off. Woodford testified to the Marine Board that he overheard McSorley say, Don't allow nobody up on the deck, Derry as well as something about a vent that Woodward couldn't understand. Sometime later, Captain McSorley of the Fitzgerald told Woodward of the Avaforce, Oh yeah, we got a bad list there. I lost both radars and I'm taking heavy seas over the deck in one of the worst seas I've ever been in in my life. By late afternoon on the 10th, the winds were sustained 60, gusting into the 80 to 90 mile an hour range, and the waves were 20 feet, 25 feet high, and reported rogue waves as high as 35 feet or higher were noted in multiple ship logs. The last communication from the ship came at approximately 7.10 p.m. when Arthur N. Anderson notified Edmund Fitzgerald of an upbound ship and asked how she was doing. McSorley reported, oh yeah, we're holding our own, and she sank minutes later. No distress signal was received, and 10 minutes later, the Arthur M. Anderson lost the ability to either reach the Edmund Fitzgerald by radio or detect her on radar. The Arthur M. Anderson contacted the Coast Guard at 7.39 p.m., and the Coast Guard told the Anderson... Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza?! It took nearly 20 more minutes to finally raise the Coast Guard on a non-emergency channel. And even then, when they finally did, I shit you not, the Anderson, which was trying to report the sinking of the Fitzgerald, were told to keep their eye out for a 16-foot pleasure craft in the area. The Anderson finally managed to notify several other ships in the area to keep their eyes open for the Fitz, but none of them could find them on our radars or visually. And it took until 9.03 p.m. to get the Coasties to finally acknowledge the Fitz as missing. The petty officer on Radio Watch testified at the inquest, Oh, yeah, I considered it, uh, you know, serious, but uh, not urgent. Oh, uh, thanks, I guess. Even when they decided it merited a response, there were no rescue vessels nearby to actually do anything. And it wasn't until around 10.30 p.m. that the Coasties asked all the commercial traffic in the area to turn around and go back to look for survivors. If it's not too much trouble. 
An aircraft finally arrived overhead at around 11 p.m. It began searching the air, but it took until nearly 1 a.m. on the 11th for the first helicopter to arrive at the station with spotlights and to get a serious search underway for survivors. After a three-day search of the last known location of the Edmund Fitzgerald, all that was found were a few lifeboats and a scattering of debris and an oil slick. Of the 29 crew on board, nothing was found. All went down with the Edmund Fitzgerald. The weather had not even cleared before the fingers of blame began being pointed over the loss of the mighty Fitz. That a ship the size of the Fitzgerald, of the reputation of the Fitzgerald, could just vanish without a trace shocked the community of sailors. It took a week to find the wreck line and over 500 feet of water broken in two. In May, a U.S. Navy submersible finally did a visual survey, finding her staffed almost exactly in half on the bottom of the, of the lake. Weather was obviously the primary cause of the accident. The general theory is that the Fitz was struck by a rogue wave or rather a group of rogue waves. The three sisters phenomenon is said to occur on Lake Superior as a result of a sequence of three rogue waves forming that are, that are one-third larger than normal waves. The first wave introduces an abnormally large amount of water onto the deck. This water is unable to fully drain away before the second wave strikes, adding to the surplus, and the third incoming wave again adds to the two accumulated backwashes, quickly overloading the deck with too much water. The water forces the ship under and sinks the ship almost instantly, rarely with survivors. This is generally a accepted as the cause of the sinking, but a ship the size of the Fitzgerald should have been able to withstand even that phenomenon. The Coast Guard, already under heavy criticism for their shitty response, were quick to lay the blame on the crew of the Fitz. From a Minnesota Live article in 2015, quote, in 1977, the U.S. Coast Guard pinned the sinking of the massive, on massive flooding of the cargo hold caused by faulty or poorly fastened hatch covers. The slow flooding supposedly went unnoticed by the captain and crew until it caused an imperceptible but fatal buoyancy loss and eventually sent the Fitzgerald plunging to the bottom. Because the ship had no depth-sounding technology, the crew had no way of knowing what that incoming water was pushing the ship lower and lower in the, in the lake until the flooding exceeded the height of the iron ore in the holds. The Coast Guard cited reports of damage to the Fitzgerald's hatches that were planned for winter repair, unquote. The National Transportation Safety Board took a less critical view of the crew, saying the three sisters likely overwhelmed the main hatchway, causing the water to pour into the hole, suddenly sinking the heavily laden vessel. This also absolves the crew of negligence and places the onus back on the bad luck and bad weather. The Lake Carriers Association, an industry group by the owners of the ships and for the owners of the ships, like to blame the Fitz's captain, Ernest McSorley, of shoaling the ship, running under rocks and shallow water during the storm. The community of lake sailors, the folks who actually did the work of sailing on the fucking lakes blamed the fucking owners citing that the ship had become overtaxed from years of exceeding our design specification for cargo and speed Minnesota tugboat captain Bob Horn, who sailed with McSorley before the man became captain of the Fitzgerald, claims McSorley once told him five years before the sinking he'd hate to be on the Fitzgerald in a big storm because hey, they got it all worn out from years of overloading. Horn told the Duluth News Tribune, they were killing the boat. It was designed to haul a carrot in the mountain. They kept getting the Coast Guard to increase the load lines. In fact, the Fitzgerald, known as a workhorse, the ship that set numerous cargo hauling records, was allowed in 1975 to sit a touch over three feet deeper in the water when laden with cargo than originally intended when the ship was launched in 1958. Others maintain the ship was structurally damaged from years of overloading and hard running. 
Ex Fitzgerald member George Bergner claimed in a deposition that unrepaired cracks and weakened metal on the ship caused the loss, according to the wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald by, by Fred Stonehouse. Bergner said a shipyard worker showed him evidence of old keel well breaks during his 1972-73 winter layup that were brought to McSorley and dismissed. The bad wells were confirmed by the Coast Guard, which approved the repairs. So, which of the theories holds... Dare I say it, water? Clearly, it was the weather that sank the fits, yet subsequent investigations on the wreck show that no signs of the crew failing to latch the seals on the compartments and the hatches, and no indications that one of them gave way under the weight of the waves. Nor are the indicators that the ship ran aground on the, via, on the visible underside of the fits. It's possible that we just can't see it, but it all seems to bear out that the crew and captain of the Edmunds Fitzgerald did everything they were supposed to do for their ship and to save their ship. There's no way to know about the fractures and failed wells within the ship that's sitting on the bottom of Lake Superior, so we'll never know for sure. But I would proffer this simple explanation that fits what we know to be true about the realities of Great Lakes shipping in 1975 as they are today. They were killed by their corporate masters. <gasps> Gasp! When the Edmund Fitzgerald was built in 1957, the steel industry in the Great Lakes shipping was at its zenith. Millions of tons of ores and coal were shipped on the lakes yearly, and it was a fucking cash cow for all the companies that owned and operated the big ships of the inland waterways. By 1975, the steel industry was in crisis, recession, oil prices, and offshoring of manufacturing were hitting the industries and hard, and they would eventually all but destroy them in the United States. The plants were closing, and the heat was on to maximize profits while minimizing expenses. And that heat was being felt by every ship owner and captain on the lakes in the mid-1970s. Every shipping operating company, like the Columbia Transportation Division, Ogle Bay Norton Company of Cleveland, Ohio, would be feeling the pressure from their corporate overlords, like the Northwestern Mutual Life Insurance Corporation, to cut costs, stay on schedule, and meet delivery times so as to save every penny on operating costs. Further, they would be under pressure to put off unnecessary expenses like routine maintenance and scheduled overhauls to keep the ships delivering product because a ship on the docks or in the yard is nothing but cost and zero income. This would be impressed on the captains of the ship who would be told every single goddamn day that if they wanted to keep their jobs and keep their crews jobs, they needed to take the risk and cut the corners wherever possible. Captains. Good captains like Ernest McSorley would know this, and they wanted to take care of their crews and their own livelihoods, so they took chances on making deliveries on schedules despite bad weather, or put off reporting problems to their bosses until times were better for everyone, never suspecting in the case of the steel industry of the Great Lakes shipping that they would never get better. In 1970, they were moving 130 million pounds of cargo on the lakes, and today those numbers are down by 60%. And the less said about the mines and the steel firms, the better. Unless, of course, you're an orange fascist trying to drum up some votes from industries that died in the 1980s. The most likely explanation is the Edmund Fitzgerald was trying to make their delivery schedule and took a chance on the weather that wound up with 29 people losing their lives in the teeth of a hurricane west wind. And all that remains are the faces and names of the wives and the sons of the daughters. How do I know? Because this shit still happens today. Oh, and in case you were worried... The Fitz was fully insured, and because no one looked at the time at any of the things I just mentioned, it was 1976 after all, they all got paid handsomely. What did the families get? Well, they got their insurance payouts for accidental deaths and a bell. The day after the wreck, 
the Mariners Church in Detroit, Michigan, rang its bell 29 times, once for each life lost. The ship's actual bell was recovered from the wreck on July 4th of 1995. A replica engraved with the names of the 29 sailors who lost their lives replaced the original on the wreck. It is still sounded every November 10th in the memory of the crew of the Abner Fitzgerald. The sea, or even in the Great Lakes, is a harsh mistress. But the corporations that own the ships and drive them as hard as they can are just a bunch of right cunts. (laughs) That is it for our show this week. You know, when you have a podcast for a long time, you might find yourself struggling for content. But not me. I got a brain full of esoterica and mid-1970s singer-songwriters to keep me cranking out content for years. It's not at all like I was staring at the news this week in creepy existential dread and then retreated into history like a kid pulling the covers over his head to keep the monsters from getting him. Speaking of monsters, rate and review this show wherever you get your pods. It helps others wake up screaming in the night when they realize the monsters are real and they are you and this podcast. Follow the show on the socials for more childhood fears content at the Hell underscore podcast on Twitter and the show name on Facebook. If you got a dollar and want to hear about your 70s maritime disasters ad-free and early, head on over to patreon.com slash whatthehellpodcast. If you want some cool swag, kick in a few dollars more. All of our shows are at whatthehellpodcast.com, and we are a proud member of Seltzer King's Podcast Network, an old place where old men with their shipwreck stories can meet millennial children's television stars in the least creepy way possible. So for me, Dave, leaving fully loaded for Cleveland every goddamn weekend Bledsoe, producer as big producers go, he's bigger than most Gavin, and all the fictional crews and captains well-seasoned on this show, we want to say, when the Witch of November comes stealing, she's just completely misunderstood, because she's not come stealing, she's taking back what was stolen from the people of the land by the white man, one or freighter at a time. We'll see you all next week. the hell were you thinking stars dave bledsoe and features gavin st james and several fictional minions the show is produced by kimberly Steele and a part of the seltzer kings podcast network you can find more information on the show on their website whatthehellpodcast.com or on twitter at the hell underscore podcast or on facebook as what the hell podcast thanks for listening i have no ending for this so i take a small bow The crew of the Edmund Fitzgerald, lost November 10th, 1975. Third mate, Michael E. Armagost. Porter, Fred J. Beecher. Euler, Thomas D. Benson. First assistant engineer, Edward F. Benden. Maintenance man, Thomas D. Borgson. Third assistant engineer, Oliver I. Shampoo. Porter, Nolan S. Church. Watchman, Ransom E. Cundy. Second assistant engineer, Thomas E. Edwards. 
Second assistant engineer, Russell C. Haskell. Chief engineer, George J. Hole. Deckhand, Bruce L. Hudson. Second cook, Alan G. Kalman. Wiper, Gordon F. McClellan. Special maintenance man, Joseph M. Mazes. First mate, John H. McCarthy. Captain, Ernest M. McSorley. Wheelsman, Eugene W. O'Brien. Watchman, Carl A. Peckle. Wheelman, John J. Pavlich. Second mate, James A. Pratt. Steward, Robert C. Rafferty. Deckhand, Paul M. Rippa. Wheelsman, John D. Simmons. Watchman, William J. Spengler. Deckhand, Mark A. Thomas. Euler, Ralph G. Walton. Cadet, David E. Weiss. Euler, Blaine H. Wilhelm. Seltzer Kings Podcasts.